Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solison. With me, as always, is my very, very talented friend, who I've said this before, is sugar and spice and all the things nice. She's an extra Stacey Gina. Hi, Louise. I feel like you're buttering me up for a quiz or something. I'm going to fail. Well, it's the holidays. I'm going to butter everything up, right? Yeah, yeah. okay. No, right, no, there's no quiz. There's no quiz. Okay. Really. Okay. Well, Tis the season of giving, right? So, the holidays are here. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Which means, of course, holiday baking. Cookies, cakes, pies, muffins, gingerbread, rolls, sticky pudding, you name it. Caramel. 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 Pecan, pecan. Mm. There you go. Mm. Um, So with all those things, do you have a favorite baking, baked item, holiday dessert? Like, okay, so... I'm from New York, so coconut custard pie is like a thing in New York for holidays. Is it? And I don't know why, and I don't know how it, where it came from, but I swear to God. <laughs> Seems kind of odd, because In it's Long Island, you, coconut custard pie is a thing, and you can get it at farmer's market, everywhere, bakeries, Italian bakeries, Jewish bakeries, everything. That would be a fun little uh, fact-finding mission to find out why coconut custard pie, pie in New York. And it's the most bizarre thing, because hmm. the coconut custard pie in the South Nothing like what we eat in New York. It's almost like a pudding. It's delicious. Huh. And they only make it at Thanksgiving. That's crazy. But we don't have sweet potato pie or any of that other stuff in New York. Yeah. So huh. that's weird. Right? Yep. So obviously you had a, have an affinity towards this coconut cream pie. Co- nope. Coconut. coconut custard pie. Coconut custard pie. So uh, what do you think about fruitcake? Well, you mean like the, like the dry one? <laughs> uh, I think the cake that most people know. <laughs> Well, I had real fruitcake once, but it's actually supposed to taste like, and then I had like everybody else's version, so I, I, it's pretty bad. Yeah. All right, so. Candied fruit in bread is not cake. But do you know, the history of fruitcake actually goes back to ancient Egypt. I can believe that. But um, dates were probably. Well, early versions included honey, dates, and a variety of nuts. That sounds delicious. And it was often used as an offering to the gods. So cool. Yeah. So I'm this I'll down for that. All of that. This next piece didn't surprise me. Of course, the Romans adapted that. You know, they took a couple of things out of Egypt. Uh, <laughs> and in the Middle Ages, um, this also makes sense. Crusaders carried them on their quests because you know they withheld or you know they, they could go the travel. They were all right. Yep. Um, and during the Victorian era in England, fruit cakes became a symbol of wealth and luxury. Because it had spice, and the spice trade came up through um, Germany, so right? That so sense. that would be very wealthy if you could get spices. That makes total sense. Okay. I was surprised there, but I knew you could piece it together for me. Um, and then, uh, well, and of course, during that time, they became really highly decorated or beautifully decorated, and um, which makes sense, and how they ended up in holiday seasons. But to your point, it was a special occasion. If the spices are expensive, now it makes sense. Um, and in the U.S., fruitcakes... Apparently gained popularity in the 1800s, um, and that's when it really became part of the holiday season for us anyway. And then, with, which I totally agree with this, is they took those hard-bricked cakes and they soaked them in alcohol, which I'm sure you know, like brandy, whiskey, rum. Rum cake. Yeah. Now that I can get behind. Which does have dried fruit in it, too, often. Um, little raisins. Not the Italian one. Oh. It's just like little peripherals, and you... Soak them in rum or whatever, whatever, or sugar overnight, and then you dry them out, and then you put them in a big stack, and then you pour honey over the top, and then if you're a really fancy Italian, you put like the little nonpareils all over it in different colors, like red and green, and you can make the stripes. 
There you go. And then you scoop it and you eat it with your coffee. And then you get a little fucked up before you go to work. Sounds like it. So you're getting a little <laughs> alcohol with your caffeine? Uh, what a yeah. great way to start the day. Uh, hello, that's the whole reason why cocktails were ever invented. They were morning pick-me-ups. Yeah. And alcohol was served after 12. Yeah. Bring me back to Victorian <laughs> era. So obviously, there's long history about fruitcakes, and whether you love it or loathe it, fruitcakes have a place in our culinary history, and apparently, they're not going anywhere. No. People still love them. Who knew? Is our next guest a fruitcake baker? She is not okay. that I know of, but she could be. Okay. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to it. Um, <laughs> the whole point of this, believe it or not, well, so many of us are baking our fruitcakes or any other special sweet delicacies during the holidays. It's important to remember that there are many who will go without. It's important for us to think about others while we are enjoying our holiday season. Um, and today's designated drinker is going to help us um, figure out how to do that, how to be better people, just like her, believe it or not. There is hope for me yet, Gina. So please welcome to the show the Deputy Director of Communications, easy for me to say, at Fresh Farm, Molly Scalise. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you fruit cake or not fruit cake? Never made a fruit cake, but my go-to holiday dessert is a pear cranberry pie that I've been making since I was like 16 years old, and it's yeah. big favorite in, among my family. It's very, very good and like secretly healthy, but I don't even like that's not the selling point. It's yeah. just delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Open top or is it a closed top? Oatmeal streusel on top. Oh, see, oh. that's how it gets healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, there's plenty of butter. I do the homemade pie crust, lots of butter in there, dollop of ice cream on top. It's fantastic. Sounds uh, delicious. It just went from okay, moderately healthy to not really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we're not, I want all the butter during all <laughs> like, the She just tricked us. She's like, man, then I take the half of it and I put it in a milkshake. Yeah, like, exactly. exactly. drink the pie. <laughs> all right. So, not here just to talk about fruitcakes. Um, Please, Molly, before we go any further, will you please tell our listeners a little bit about the Fresh Farm organization? Tell us what it's all about. Yes, we are a DC-based nonprofit organization working to build a sustainable, equitable, and resilient food system in the Mid-Atlantic region. And we were founded in 1997 with the opening of the DuPont Circle Farmers Market, which is our um, most well-known and biggest farmers market. We've since grown to a network of 25 different farmers markets and farm stands, as well as um, food education, food access, and food distribution programs, trying to get healthy, nutritious local food to everybody in our communities. That's such a tall order. That's yeah, amazing now. She just summed it up so in, like, in three sentences. She's like, what we do is feed everybody. So. <laughs> she is the deputy director of communications. That's how that comes mm, out yes, so well. Yes, this is yes. what she does. This is what this lady does for a living. So speaking of, how did how did this all start for you? How did you end up in uh, in this space? Yeah, so I've kind of always been interested in food. Um, I didn't really realize how long my interest had been around until I got to where I am now and looked back. But as a kid, I would you know read the backs of cereal labels and read ingredient lists just because I thought it was interesting. Um, my mom was a little bit of what you might call an almond mom now. Um, she, mom. yeah. No, define <laughs> almond mom for our listeners. She wasn't, okay, so I think today it's like very wellness focused, yeah. very, you know, clean eating, things like that. She wasn't super strict about it, but it was definitely like, you know, pizza and soda was only for Friday nights. Yeah. Um, we would go to the health food store and buy like this 
dark brown bread that my sister and I called dirt bread. We hated it so much. I think health foods have just gotten a lot tastier since yeah. the 90s, um, but we suffered. Uh, Shit, try it in the 70s. Yeah, Good exactly. God, my yeah. mom. So, you know, Moosewood Cookbook, Die for a Small Planet, all yeah. the hippy-dippy um, wellness stuff. But, you know, we also, like, it wasn't, it wasn't crazy, but enough to, like, make an impact on me. Um, so then um, continued my interest in food for a long time, ended up in the environmental sector after college, and um, was working for a different environmental organization and was really getting more interested in like sustainable agriculture and things like that, and decided that was kind of what I narrowed, wanted to narrow in on. So I enrolled in a farmer training program at the University of Vermont. Um, so I got to spend six months farming in Burlington, and it was just an amazing experience getting to really learn how farming works and learn from other farmers in that region. Um, there's some really badass farmers in Vermont, and it was very, very cool to see all the stuff that they're they're doing. Um, I will say that's the very first time I've ever heard those words strung together. <laughs> badass farmers in Vermont. That's that's a new one. There's a lot of them. And there's a lot of badass farmers in the Mid-Atlantic, too. <laughs> badass farmers. I just like see them out with their leather jackets doing whatever <laughs> farmers do. I don't know what I'm doing right now, but that's I was being hoeing? a farmer. <laughs> you look like you're hoeing. It's exactly what they look like. Not anymore, Gina. I'm a respectable woman now. <laughs> You walked right into it, Louise. I had to take it. <laughs> I just, it was, it was too good. Oh, you set them up, you knock them down. I know. <laughs> I'm down taking this one. Sorry, please. No, no, well played, well farmers. played. Yes. Um, so did that for six months, and um, when I wrapped up the program, decided I wanted to come back to D.C. and was looking for different food organizations to join. And I found Fresh Farm, and I'm really glad this is where I ended up because it is so, um, what I like about Fresh Farm is that it's so lo locally oriented. So we're really you know, working with farmers that are within 200 miles of DC. We're working with the local communities. Um, we're working with schools. We're working with different institutions and other nonprofits. And it's just those partnerships and that element of community feels really impactful because we can actually see kind of like the lives that we're making a difference in. Policy and all that obviously is still very important. Um, there's plenty of people in DC doing great work there, but um, I really like having that kind of tangible um, local level aspect to it. So when you say you work with farmers, what does that mean? Yeah, so I think the most obvious way is through our farmers markets. So we have a network of over 200 farmers that sell at our markets. So they're getting that um, direct to consumer retail opportunity. So um, when farmers sell to a grocery store or a wholesale company, they're making you know pennies on the dollar for their product. Whereas if they're selling at a farmer's market, they can command a much higher price. Um, which is great for them economically. And then it also allows the consumer to know who is growing their food and they can ask questions and kind of, you know, shake the hand that feeds them, as we like to say. Um, and then on top of that, the food is typically just traveling a much shorter distance. Um, so it's just a very, you know, virtuous cycle of, uh, of, of a smaller food chain. Um, and then through our food distribution programs, we also have other revenue opportunities for farmers where we basically act as a wholesaler. Um, so we'll purchase uh, quantities of food to distribute to kind of small partners that can't necessarily or, or don't necessarily have the purchasing power to buy from local wholesalers. Um, so what we'll do is we'll aggregate product from a bunch of different small farmers 
to distribute to organizations like child care centers or senior care centers or things like that that are often serving vulnerable communities. Um, so we're kind of bridging that gap between the farmer and these communities that wouldn't necessarily have access to local food otherwise. So it's helping them get that food and then again also helping the farmers bring in more revenue for their business. That's so wonderful to think about, you know, Absolutely, people who are hungry, we we need to feed all of our communities, be a part of that 100%. It's just wonderful to hear that there can be really fresh, locally grown, what we all think is the higher t ticket item, um, in some most cases it is, that these the people who, just because they have less coin in their pocket, mm -hmm. doesn't mean they don't deserve the same um, access to really fresh and wonderful food like the rest of us. So that's great. It's great yeah. that you're starting to build those bridges and break down those barriers, is my point. It, you don't have to tell me on how awesome Farm Fresh is. I've done um, I, for a long time uh, so much with them, but I will say my one of my best education stories ever. If you're in the D.C. area and you haven't been to one of the farmers markets. There's so many. There's one almost every day of the week now. Every day, but Monday and Friday. Yeah, but yep. Monday and Friday, right? Well, there used to be one on Friday. Uh, a long time. Yeah, ago. yeah. Anyway, there was one in Penn Corner, which I absolutely loved, and there was um, Black Rock Orchard, yep. and she taught me. Every single thing I keep saying, what am I saying? Farm fresh? <laughs> fresh farm's a common mistake. <laughs> I live on a farm. Jesus. Can, can you, right. have a, you do have a farm fresh. So she was 100% the reason why I learned about so many different mm -hmm. fruits and stuff and why Rasika, when I worked there and I was their beverage um, um, person, had the craziest, most awesome beverage program in the early 2000s when they opened in um, Penn Quarter because she's the one that said, did you ever have this? Did you ever have these figs? Did you ever have this kind of nut? Did you ever, and she would bring us all these things and I would make this incredible, and on Thursdays I went mm -hmm. and spent a small a small fortune <laughs> yeah. and got in trouble. First learned about Seckle Fairs. Uh -huh. Didn't yep. know any of these things. And um, yeah, you just, so good for your soul. For sure, yeah. And Emily at BlackRock is a great example. She's just, um, and the Penn Quarter Market as well. Like there are a lot of chefs that come through there um, with all the restaurants in that neighborhood. So it's really fun to kind of see them talking to the farmers and knowing that that food is going to end up on the dinner plates, you know, that night or that weekend. Um, and uh, Emily specifically, and a lot of our other farmers as well, but, you know, grows a lot of different heirloom varieties of, of apples and other fruits that you would never be able to find in a grocery store because they're produced at too small of a scale or they like bruise too easily. So it's difficult to get them to market. Um, there's just so many factors that determine what the average person is able to buy in a supermarket versus like the crazy stuff that you sometimes find at a farmer's market that you didn't even know existed, which I think is super fun. How old is Emily now? Oh gosh, I don't know. I know her son just got married this summer. <laughs> she's just a wonderful person. You talk about like farm strong, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she's the uh, the definition of that. She's the definition of it. She is definitely. She carries all the things. She does all the things. She has helpers, but she is definitely in your. She may not remember remember your name, but definitely knows what you bought the week before. Yes, for sure. <laughs> like she's like a force to be reckoned with. Incredible asset. She's That's an incredible awesome. asset to this like community for sure. Yeah. You know, the first time I ever saw this, um, and, and I'm not in the food and beverage industry. First time I saw how farming affected the food that we eat, like really on a big scale, was when I lived in Hawaii, and there were no small farmers because it the plantation space in Hawaii only disappeared within like the last 15, 20 years. When I got there, I think, and I got there in. 
2004. Uh, yeah, 2004. There were no small farmers, and the plantations were just starting to go away. The pineapple plantations were going away. So all these people who, yes, were farmers, did not know how to farm on a smaller scale. They just knew how to do these huge plantations of pineapple. I say just, but I mean, it was, it was a, a lapse there. And when the first recession happened, when we lived there, petroleum got really, really high. It was like, and it, so the unfortunate thing in Hawaii, it was 78% petroleum-based, uh, reliant on everything. And if the ship stopped coming, they only had three days worth of food. That's it, wow. to feed the islands. And then there would be no food. To think that in such lush islands that this is, was the reality of food, it was the chefs, the Pacific Rim chefs, that actually changed the paradigm and had made for a call or a reason for farmers to start farming smaller amounts mm -hmm. so, that the, so that the Pacific Rim chefs, who, that, and I have to, to think like the top chefs of the world and like the food networks that came into Hawaii because they brought all these chefs that wanted more things, it became a thing. Pacific Rim food became a thing that people wanted and it actually changed the way food was produced in Hawaii on a large grand scale. Um, when we first started going to farmer's markets and I could find heirloom tomatoes because I guarantee you want to taste the worst tomato you've ever tasted was before they started growing them in Hawaii because they'd pick them so early. By the time you got, it tastes like cardboard. It wasn't anything. Um, it came from California, I guess. Or right? somewhere, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then sat on a ship for however long. Um, but then when they started making their own, it was just night and day. It's, that was the first time I saw how that the food demand that, or the, what yeah. chefs can, how chefs can actually change a landscape, literally change a landscape. Yeah. So it was kind of cool. But anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but I wanted to share it. I don't know, but I love it. How many, um, hold on, I have a question. Don't you guys have a rule, like, how far you can be... Yes. What's the rule? Yes. So um, our farmers markets are what is called producer only. So that means everybody who is selling there um, is either growing the food or making the food themselves. And the ingredients have to be, or a large portion of the ingredients have to be sourced um, from about within 200 miles of DC. That's so the yeah, the farmers are, are coming from within 200 miles and then the producers or value added products are sourcing those ingredients um, from this region. So like I, I I'm I'm just doing this on like based on like what I know and how many things I bought. Then they first started, it wasn't as big as it is now, mm -hmm. and it is incredible to find how many people that like just in like the Maryland, Virginia area where it's like 15 and up into like Leesburg or on the outside of Leesburg and like up into a little bit of the Appalachian Trail in West Virginia, and like all those like areas you're about you're just under like 175 miles. How much food is grown there? How much beautiful, beautiful like apples and pears mm -hmm. and nectarines and just come from like that one little area and you never would have known. Like you never yeah. would have known. And I think it's like commendable like how they started this and like and how big it's become. Yeah, and what's really awesome about this region is because it, you know, goes down to southern Virginia up to Pennsylvania and even the edges of, you know, New Jersey. Um the spectrum of stuff that we can get throughout the season. So like, you know, we'll get the Virginia strawberries in April, but then by the time those are fading out, well, the Pennsylvania strawberries are going really strong. So you just get such a long season for all of this delicious food that, you know, for other places that have kind of a more 
finicky climate, you know, might not get it as long, but um, we're really we're really lucky to have such an abundance of awesome stuff here. Yeah, it's also <laughs> really cool that you're doing all this. How do you find any vendors? Do they have to apply or you find them now? Yeah, um, so we do, we have an application process um, and we do a little bit of recruitment to, you know, to diversify our offerings or if we need specific types of products like dairy or bread or things like that. Um, but our market team, reviews all the applications over the winter, um, and then puzzles together the giant um, you know, map of what does each market need? Does, do those vendors have the capacity to serve multiple markets? Does it work with their schedule? It's just like such a huge job to piece all of that together with 25 markets, 200 farmers and producers, and just figuring out all of the different, and then they have to figure out, okay, well, what am I gonna plant? Who am I gonna hire? Figuring out all the different logistics. Um, I'm not on the market team and I don't envy that job because I know how much work they put into it. Um, and you know, we like to say that markets don't just happen. You know, it, yeah. it requires a lot of work to put it together. And a lot of farmers markets across the country are volunteer run, which I do not know how they do it. Um, but ours, we, you know, we do have like a, a staff that, that manages all of that, um, as well as the logistics of getting street permits and closing the streets and working with the government, the, the local government ringing on things. Ringing the bell. Exactly, ringing the opening bell, a highlight of the day. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really special places. And it's, it's cool to see the community that can just kind of like spring out of a, a street, you know, for a few hours once a week and bring all of these different folks together. Um, people shopping of all different incomes, farmers coming from all across the region, it's um, producers pr creating food from countries around the world. Um, we have a lot of you know immigrant um, food producers that bring like prepared foods to market, which is really cool to see. Um, so yeah, they're just, they're really special places. So it sounds like they have a lot of tricks up their sleeves to they make do. this happen. They do, <laughs> they do. We're gonna talk about a trick, right? Yeah. Okay, all right, well, it's kind of like a holiday kind of trick. Let's do it. All right. Okay. You've seen it at all the cocktail bars. You've seen it on TV, Legolams, uh, rice pudding, all the desserts. It's all the rage, right? What am I talking about? This awesome Seder plate. No, I'm just kidding. It is a uh, gold leafing. So we are going to show you how to technique, how to use gold leafing today with um, spotting it in salt, putting it on fruit, and then rimming a glass. So let's get started, right? So there are two kinds of gold leafing. There's the one used for art projects and then there's the one that's edible. Please make sure you buy the edible gold leafing when you do this. Um, it's very important, right? See, it comes in a little paper, it's so great. What can't you do when you have gold leafing? You can't touch it to your finger because it will immediately get stuck there. So let's just try on the first, most simplest thing. We're gonna gold leaf this little gooseberry and we're gonna make it look super pretty and I'm gonna show you how sticky it is and what it's gonna do. So you have this beautiful gooseberry, right? If I put it on my hand right now, it is literally going to get stuck there. So we're gonna take our spoon and we are gonna just wrap this up and make it look like a beautiful little pearl. And this is a great cocktail garnish because you can put it right on top and then it'll sit there and the gold won't do anything. You can pierce this, make it look like, you know, uh, gooseberry in gold wrap, whatever you want. If you want to make it a surprise what's in there and you don't want anybody to know, you can move it around. You notice I'm not using my fingers. My fingertips are very hot. And I'm just moving it around and then you have a gold wrapped surprise, if you will. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite techniques for using gold leaping is putting it on salt, right? Nuts. That's an expensive, expensive salt rim, but it is so cute. 
So you're gonna take your gold leaf and you're gonna drop it in. And I'm using Maldon salt because it's nice and big and it'll show it. And you can see it wants to leave me. And we're gonna put it inside there and we're gonna put two. And now we're gonna take it and we're gonna shred it a little bit, right? And what it's gonna do is make these beautiful little gold flakes. Now I'm this old, I'm so old that there used to be this cock, this, this liquor called Goldschlager. And in Goldschlager they put, oh my gosh, edible gold. So they put it in there. So now I'm using it to make golden salt, which I think is so lovely because it looks so precious and beautiful and I kind of like love it. And the more you put in it, the more gold it's gonna get. And you know, it teaches them. Be as gaudy or as less gaudy as you wanna be. This is all about decadence, this, this little tip. All right, last one, rimming a glass. How can we rim the glass and make it look beautiful? Well, this glass is gonna be a great way to do it because it is edged. So when you take it, you can put it on here. And again, you gotta be really careful when you're using it because it literally wants to go to the hottest point, right? Well, we're gonna take it and we're gonna do a little crinkle and kind of stick it on the glass. Now, can you use a little bit of water? You can. This would normally have a drink in it. So you would do this after. And you'll put it on there and then it'll sit or you can, you can adhere to it or you can put it on the inside if you want and push it all the way in and use your, you can use your fingers, but I don't want to do that because you don't want to do that in your bar, but to show you, you can flake it in there and make it look into any shape that you want. And it's just a really beautiful way to present your cocktails in a different way. So whether you flake it, put it down or wrap something up, gold leafing is really the coolest thing and your friends will think that you had the Midas touch. Happy holidays. Midas, huh? The Midas touch, that's yeah. right. If anyone has it, Gina, it's you. Yes, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a curse and a blessing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, isn't that cool though? Like you like you can put the, like, the gold leafing on everything and then like even like put it like as a little rim. And I think it's like a fun little uh, just your cocktails for the holidays. Just yeah, it's nice for the holidays. It's a it's a, like a nice little luxury, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, it's not crazy expensive, but you know the rule: don't get the one that's for the walls. <laughs> yeah. You have to get the edible ones. <laughs> where where do where would you suggest you get it? it on like anywhere? Any good um, Amazon's probably one of the easiest, easiest ways ones. to get it. Yeah. I hate that though sometimes. I'm like, you know, support some of these local kitchen places. Um, you know, Hill's Kitchen carries things like yeah. that during the holiday. Um, but I think a lot, a lot of small communities across the nation will have those. You just gotta find those. You're right, shops local and yes. small if you can. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong, Uncle Jeff, thank you. Don't cut off my Amazon Prime, but yes. <laughs> I know, I, I can't even imagine that I just like order something and it's at my door like eight hours later and you're like, how did that even happen? I don't, I don't, know. Know. I don't know. Magic, I speaking know. of magic, it's yes. like Santa. What? He's like, he's, he's, not like, he's not like Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Santa would just give it for free. Yeah. Okay. All right. All this holiday cheer brings us to the end of part one with designated drinker and deputy director of communications at Fresh Farm, Molly Scalise. But if you're anything like me or Gina, or I'm going to bet maybe even Molly, one round is just never enough. So go top that drink off and get ready for part two of this episode as we continue our boozy banter and Gina's gonna share a delicious cocktail that'll make you be thankful for that and for all that is in your holidays. That's very nice. I try sometimes. Mm. <laughs>
The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, we craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to follow, download, and review the shows. Your reviews help our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.